Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. Check one, check one. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. What a day. What a day. Mike Pedigo and I just got done with a three-hour toe session on the 170. Uh, I made Mike try my tuning today, which was kind of awesome. And can't wait till you guys see the clips because it looks really good. <laughs> I was giving him shit the whole time that we were out there. I was like, Mike, this is how you should be riding. Should, I should be your, your crew chief. You should just come to me and I'll dial your stuff. Obviously, he rips on everything that he rides, but uh, he looked really good with the way that I set stuff up. So my ski, my setup, I don't know if that's actually a real thing, but it sounded good. Uh, today's guest on the show is Dave Kalama. This is, I think, Dave's fourth time on this podcast. He recorded on my other podcast a number of times, and he is probably my favorite guest. I don't, I mean, I can't say that because there's been so many incredible episodes, but you guys get a sneak peek into our conversations on these shows. Cause I talk to Dave pretty regularly. I would say maybe once a month or so we'll have a conversation that is every bit as good as the podcasts. And I feel like this is probably the first one that captured our conversations. And it, it is kind of an amalgamation of the last, I don't know, three or four times that we've talked, some of the ideas that we've been talking about. Um, creativity and innovation um, is, a, is a big theme in this show. And, you know, starting there, everyone thinks of Dave, or, or predominantly we think of Dave as an athlete. And his athletic accomplishments are pretty easy to see. But, but he's also an incredible innovator. And I actually think that his influence in these sports is more profound as an innovator than as an athlete. Um, I mean, if you go back, golly, to the early towing Jaws days, uh, step into liquid, first foil flights in waves, you know, Dave's a part of that whole crew. And then you go into SUP and what he's done in SUP racing and uh, SUP surfing. And then being such an early adult, adapter um adopter an early adopter into the foil game in this round two of foiling or round three if you look at the air chairs and whatnot um he's been leading the way and that has not that has not slowed down at all because in the last year year and a half he has been able to completely revolutionize the way that everyone is downwinding and what we're riding and the way that we see being able to capture offshore energy. And I think that needs to be stated. I mean, I think that Dave needs, deserves the credit for what he's been able to showcase. And, you know, and all of these companies out there now are, are making downward boards. I'll probably make downward boards at some, at some time. But we can't forget that, you know, Simon Anderson brought us the thruster and Dave Kalama brought us the ability to ride open ocean bumps on a on a stand-up or prone. So in this podcast, we talk about the story of what, what how the Barracuda came to be, um, the steps in that process, and how long that process happened behind the scenes without us having any idea what was going on. 
And I think that's incredible. And yeah. And then, then we get into creativity. We get into tuning. We get into the difference between enjoying a surf session and a surf session that's more about the gear and learning and how those feel, how they're different. Um, so anyways, it's, it's a great conversation. It's a long one. I think that you guys are going to like it. Uh, please hit me with uh, any feedback from this show. And I really appreciate the, the feedback from the Joel Pilgrim show. That was amazing. Um, it seems like at least everyone who was sending feedback really enjoyed that show. And actually this morning I recorded an episode <clears throat> that is our farthest deviation from surfing in, in a while. Anyway, since the very beginning of the show, uh, and that episode was with Sebastian Younger, who is a war journalist who wrote the book, war the book tribe um, early in his writing career he wrote the perfect storm which you know got turned into a movie and wow that's that's going to be a good one that one will be out next week and um yeah just let me know if you like the new the new kind of i don't know tact of the show what we're what we're going to try to explore over the next year and like i said before i'm going to do an episode a week and so it'll be the same amount of foiling there's just going to be some other themes thrown in there as well so um any notes before we jump in 170 140s out in the wild the feedback has been insane that's been a really that was very difficult to have those sent out and i don't know it, it felt like having to have critics review your art or something i don't know i'm sure cliffy is much easier with that process but for me it was i was on pins and needles every time i was like oh you got the wing and then you know the feedback would come back and it was just incredible i'm getting videos from some folks that um that are just really stoking me out right now so that's going to be really fun to um to be a part of over the next year and i'm just grateful that uni and cliffy were stoked on that project and and let me go along for the ride or, or contribute help so very awesome anyways uh hope everybody is doing well 2023 the year of sending it i have been trying as hard as i possibly can and hope that you are as well so all right take care dave how are you I'm good. <clears throat> How you doing, Eric? Good. I'm good. You know, one thing I should say is that we are recording this at 5 a.m. Hawaii time, and it always blows me away that you are up and so on it so early in the morning. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, I'm not sure it's as cool as you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say it's 100% intentional, but I don't sleep that well a lot, and so... Since I get up super early, kind of involuntarily, mm -hmm. it's like, well, I might as well get up and start getting some work done because then I can go surfing with a little bit clearer conscience. And uh, so a lot of times I'm, I'm out in my workshop by 3.30, 4 in the morning sometimes, just piddling away, and, you know. But it's great. That time of morning, there's no interruptions. Your mind's clear. It's kind of the most productive part of my day you might say yeah i used to do that back when i was um running a company in costa rica the only time the office was so busy the only time i could actually do my work was <clears throat> super early so i'd get up jam on that and then still get 
you know, kind of a sunrise surf session. And then by the time I was in the office, I was just hanging out. My day was 50% done. And that was wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you've been traveling a ton. You know, one of the things that I am maybe most jealous, I hate using that word, but is the fact that you get to spend a couple weeks on Nomotu every year and call it a job. I'm very fortunate. <laughs> and <clears throat> I don't mean to rub salt in the wound, but it's a heck of a lot more than two weeks a year. <laughs> I I seem to find myself <clears throat> down in Fiji anywhere from two to three months out of the year. Oh, my goodness. Which is fine with me because I absolutely love Fiji. And uh, as I've seen on Instagram, there's a lot more of the foil community discovering what a treasure trove it is. And so a lot of the time, unfortunately, while I do say I'm down there two to three weeks or two to three months out of the year, and your mind's thinking, oh, God, he's surfing there for two to three months out of the year. I'm not. <laughs> a lot of the time I go down there, I'll be there for a week or two, and I'll never catch a single wave. Um, a lot of times I'm down there under the banner of working, um, but even with that, I don't care if it's work, play, or whatever. I'm in Fiji, and I absolutely love it there. And there are times I get those little secret sessions in, even when I am working. And so it's it's magical. It's uh, I always kind of refer to it as my therapy, and it makes um. God, I hate to even sound like I'm complaining about reality because <laughs> my reality is pretty good. <laughs> it's all relative. But it kind of is, but it just, boy, it puts everything in perspective. The Fijian people, the pace of life, the simplicity of life down there is so rejuvenating um, that when I come home, it, it really helps me stay focused on the things that are important and not get overwhelmed by the things that aren't. I love that. I was just thinking back. We did two two weeks on Tavarua, probably about I don't man a long time ago now. Um, seven seven years, eight years. It kind of ruined me for surfing. It was so good that going back to Costa Rica, <laughs> it just wasn't as fun to surf in Costa Rica after spending that time. And we scored while we were out there. That I ended up getting really hurt that next year because I all I wanted to do was just pack barrels and I was doing it on shallow sandbars and yeah. I'm still carrying some of that damage. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's you, you come home and, um, you know, I was checking in with people I was just there with during my Kalama camp, and everyone kind of had the same thing. It took about a good week to reacclimate back into your normal life because you go through this depression because life is so simple down there, yep. and there's no cars, and you're not watching the news, and it's just... Decide what you're going to have for breakfast. Which surf break should I go to? Do I take a nap today or not? Let's go back. Oh, it's getting windy. Let's do a downwinder. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's paradise. You know, it's magical. And so uh, I love being there under any pretense. If you're there, you got most of it right. Yeah. So today, the focus of the show, and we've covered a lot, and one of the things that I think that we haven't done a great job of covering, um, which I think is just as important as your influence as a waterman, is 
the innovation and creativity that you have brought to all of the sports that you have been a part of. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, or, or your path as, as a waterman has been aided by your innovation. You know, you've also, you've been staying ahead, you know, on the physical technical front, but you've also been leading the way on the innovation front. And those two things go hand in hand. Um, so let's start the conversation by talking about mm-hmm. how you first started diving into the design innovation side of board sports or, or did it start well, before that? I, I, sh- I don't want to cap it there. Did it start before that? You know, I want to say creativity in design technique maneuvers, uh, any applicable uh, mindset that helps move anything you're putting your attention to forward starts with a mindset. And I was introduced to that mindset through one of my surf heroes um, being Larry Bertelman, a surfer from the 70s. And him, Buttons uh, in particular, but Lopez was also one of my kind of surf idols. But I remember this quote in a movie, I think, a movie or magazine where Bertelman said, and he was referring to his surfing, that anything is, in, anything is possible. And while I was very young at the time, it, it didn't make a tremendous amount of sense to me <clears throat> that anything was possible. I mean, he made it look like anything was possible, but, you know, my imagination is going to doing loops and giant airs and who knows which weren't being done at the time, right? And so I kind of wrote it off as hyperbole and and not something you would take literal. But as my life went along and my involvement in surfing and water sports developed, I always held on to that quote. And it began to make sense to me as I went along, especially when I got to a really high level of windsurfing. Mm-hmm. And and this would have been in the 80s. Uh, I was making my living windsurfing basically at Hokipa every day. And so I was at the forefront of, of progressive maneuvers. And that's when it really started to click where you have to have a creative, visionary uh, imagination. And if you can imagine it, and you can see it in your mind, it is possible. And so that's how a lot of the maneuvers got developed throughout the 80s, at least with the generation I came up with uh, in windsurfing. And then it started to make sense. And then as we got into toe surfing, um, that comment started to resonate even more in the waves that we were riding, the way we were riding them, and the equipment that we started riding them with. And so as time went on, I I really, that statement that anything is possible became more and more profound, and I started to understand it's true. It's not hyperbole anything literally is possible. And that can be applied to boards, maneuvers, fixing a car, building a house, 
getting from point A to point B, whatever it is, there's always a way. And I truly 100% believe that. Now, there's a caveat that goes with that. Your vision um, sometimes needs to be modified. Your definition of your goal might need to be modified um, as you develop whatever the task or the, the endeavor is. Um, and if you have an open mind and you're hell-bent for leather on achieving whatever your goal is and making something that seems impossible possible, I, I 100% truly believe that now. Um, and just with that mindset opens the door to so many more possibilities. Um, and while, hey, at times the reality is you might not achieve your goal that you set out to achieve, but you're going to learn a hell of a lot that will be applicable to that instance or something down the road um, that will be applicable in what you've learned and the lessons that come from chasing things that seem impossible um, and allowing you to make them possible uh, either at that moment or down the line. So starting with the mindset and, and buying in completely. If you don't have that buy-in that anything is possible, then you've already limited yourself before you've even tried to achieve something. And so you, if you really want to reach new levels or levels that have never been reached, you, you have to start with, with the belief that anything is possible. And then set out from there and and you're going to if you don't hit the target you sure are going to get a lot closer than you would have if you didn't believe it do you have uh one of the what, what's the most grandiose example of that that comes to mind some far-fetched belief well that you have something that's applicable yeah. to our discussion which is foiling is i distinctly remember sitting in math class scribbling on my book cover of fantasizing what it would be like to ride the ocean, you know? So now in, in that little kid version of riding the ocean, I would have envisioned these giant swells um, and, and riding a specific individual swell like you would a wave that breaks. And that seemed absolutely impossible, but something you could imagine and... and uh, you know, fantasize about. Well, here we are, you know, a few decades later, and we are literally riding the ocean, you know, from one island to the next or whatever point A to point B represents for you. It is now possible. And what I said earlier about having an open mind and being flexible in your definition, we're not riding individual open ocean waves but wind swells mm -hmm. and it sure feels the same to me <laughs> on a foil. And so stuff like that, I, I think uh, exemplifies that anything is possible. And if you have patience and tenacity and imagination, you can get there. When did you realize that foiling and downwinding in particular 
was what you were dreaming about in math class when you were in high school? What was that moment like when you, when you, when you put that together? Well, you, you know, I had, I had a, a slight taste test of that back in the original version of foiling. We'd go up to Piahi, uh, which represented a, a few to several mile journey to get there. And we'd go foil, you know, the wave for a while. And it would usually get windy at some point, and so we'd turn around and we'd head back down wind to, to go in. Well, on some of those days, it was quite windy, and the wind swell was pretty significant, and we'd be like, hey, t let's tow back down and see if we can ride any of these things. And um, while our foils were not conducive at all for open ocean swells, it did allow us the opportunity to get some insight to like, oh, wait a minute, this might be possible. Because you could connect, oh, at that time, two to four was pretty regular um, when, you know, bumps. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't really get past that. I think the most I ever connected was like maybe five or six. and But that was kind of a really lucky, good connection. And... uh Anyway, at the end of our sort of initial run of foiling, I did start to chase the downwind vision, and I started making wings that looked very similar to glider wings, um, high aspect, much broader, wider. Um, but we were very limited by what we could create because we were encumbered by standard G10 panels at that time. Um, meaning that was, that was the thickness of the panel that was conducive for, uh, windsurfing slalom foil fins, which were somewhere just under half an inch thick, half inch at the most. Um, so all you could really manipulate was the foil sections and the outline, but going thicker didn't, it didn't even seem like it was a... A consideration or a possibility and I had very limited success I think I was a little too aggressive in what I was trying to create because our foils at the time were so small and so I was using that as sort of a relative starting point and knowing what I know now you know the foils needed to be about two to two to four times bigger at the least to uh, have had a chance anyway I dropped the ball that's when stand-up really started to kind of take off. Um, and so I kind of got sucked down the SUP rabbit hole and, and left the downwind foiling at the time. Plus, it wasn't like you paddled in. To go foiling back in those days, you had to have a partner, you had to have a jet ski, and it wasn't as accessible. So it never seemed like it was really going to go anywhere. It was just purely for our individual fun. Um, and like I say, at that time I got sucked into SUP and, and the downwinding aspect of SUP, the wave riding, da 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 down the line. And, and so foiling for me got backburnered. Yeah. You mentioned creativity. Well, we started the conversation on creativity and I wanted to see your understanding of where creativity comes from. What is the process for you? Is it from 
you know, some benevolent being instilling, you know, like the Greek, <laughs> the Greeks used to think about creativity where it was, you know, a gift given to you. Um, how do you see where ideas come from? Um, I see it different. I, I don't, I don't see myself as creative per se. I see myself as a problem solver. So my process is identify a problem, work on a solution. And sometimes I need to create problems that don't even exist to solve problems that don't exist either. <laughs> um, but when I can identify a problem or what I perceive to be a problem, I can start to go to work and figure out what the solution is. And so for me, um, more specifically, or, or one scenario that applies to me is the board design. Um, in, if getting up on the foil is the problem, then okay, I can start to work on a solution to make it easier to get up on to a foil. You know, and the five cent version of that tour is that's what led me to the Barracuda. Um, took a lot longer time to get there than that explanation, but um, that was a, a huge driving force. And uh, back to the, the anything is possible uh, story earlier, a lot of that came from, I had this, well, SUP foiling or stand-up foiling at the time was the primary entry point into foiling and prone foiling was growing probably more rapidly, but less participants. Mm -hmm. But the writing was kind of on the wall at the time where you go, okay, how many stand-up paddlers are there? How many surfers are there? And you look at that math and you go, there's a gazillion times more surfers in this world than there are stand-up paddlers. If a, if a small percentage of surfing adopts this version of riding, then the potential um, participation numbers on the prone side are going to be huge. I had already been into downwinding at that point, but I was just using my normal stand-up wave gear as my downwind gear. But I had the vision of... In the current form, none of the prone guys have access to this style of foiling being the downwinding. And I thought, man, they are missing out on the best part of what, or a incredible part at the very least. I'm not gonna say it's better than riding a wave, but to me, it's as good as riding a wave. And no form of downwinding prior to that would I even, I'd laugh at the concept. But this version in foiling, it, it was on par with riding a wave. And so I thought to myself, boy, if I can figure out how to get prone downwinding available to all these guys that are going to come into the sport, downwinding will be huge. And that's what started this path of prone downwinding and ultimately morphed into extremely efficient uh, boards to get up on foil from prone, which ultimately became stand up two. Once I realized, as long as the volume's there, you can stand up on anything. Basically, I mean, 
You know, there was a time I thought 22 and a half, there's absolutely no way you could ever stand up on a 22 and a half wide board. That ended up became, becoming my norm. And now by today's standards, 22 and a half is wide, which is just, you know, funny to think that that a point that we thought was impossible is now actually the wide version of what's going on versus the limits of what was going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so to try and get back to your question about creativity, um, I look at painters, musicians. To me, that's creativity. They're pulling something out of thin air to create something that everybody can appreciate. I don't look at it that way for me. I just look at it as identifying a problem and working on the solution. I think about creativity a lot because, um, I don't know, it's just one of the places where my mind tends to spend some time. And for me, what I have decided is that I think creativity is almost a misnomer. And I feel like ideas that seem new come from a breadth of experience and drawing conclusions that people hadn't seen before. So I don't know, it's a good example, but. Um, being exposed huh. to a wide range of board sports allows you to see something, a new maneuver bringing from snowboarding into surfing or, okay. um, you know, in music, if you, you know, if you think about rock and roll and then you think about the blues, you, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a logical leap there that just a couple people saw before everyone else. And so I kind of think that creativity is about exposure and deep understanding in different fields and then drawing new conclusions that other folks hadn't seen. And, and so when I realized that, or for me, that's how it is. I mean, maybe other people, maybe they have a muse. I think my daughter might have a muse. She writes tons of songs and it just comes out of her. I don't, I don't know where it comes from. But for me, when I realized that, I don't have the muse. Um, uh, my goal was to gain deep exposure in lots of different areas, which would just give me a broader understanding to draw from for the future. Does that resonate at all with you? Absolutely. So I'll tell you a story of, of what I perceive as creativity. So one day I'm towing Jaws with Laird and it's kind of in the, in the middle of our run. So that would have been somewhere in the late 90s, let's say. And he pulls into this barrel and I'm driving the jet ski on the shoulder of the wave. So I have a view straight in looking, looking at him. And I can see him see me. And he kind of has this little smirk on his face. Like, look at me. I'm getting barreled, right? And, and for that split second when he took his attention off of the wave and he focused on me, noticing him... He started to drift up the face of the wave. And, and now, granted, this wave's probably somewhere around 18 to 20 feet, which uh, let's call it 35 to 40 foot face wave. Um, he's starting to get sucked up the face. He's well inside the barrel, so I seriously doubt anybody from the cliff watching would have seen it, or even a normal angle from the channel would have seen it. And I see him make this mistake because he took his attention off of what he was doing for a split second. And he's just about to get pitched. 
over the lip inside the barrel and he just jumps out of the face of the wave, drops down about 10 feet, lands right next to the lip that's, you know, imploding on onto the water. All this is happening in the barrel. And he, you know, kind of carves a bottom turn, gets himself back up mid-face, and then comes flying out of the barrel. I had never, ever seen anybody do an aerial in the barrel. And so to me, at that moment, to have the, the wherewithal and awareness to not write the situation off as I'm going over the falls and go, no, I've still got this. And to come up with, oh, I'll just jump down, reset the rail, and continue on. That's creativity. That's pulling something out of your ass in the heaviest moment <laughs> that you could possibly put yourself in and somehow finding a way to make it work, which comes back to anything is possible. And I would imagine the likes of Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, in some of their heaviest moments, tap into that type of creativity when, when let's say, a defender shuts down their one shot they switch hands, go to the other side, and do something that none of us have ever seen before, but because there's like, I will not be denied, anything is possible, you pull stuff out of thin air like that, that at times rewrites what's possible. And um, I think that's that creativity you're talking about, that it is such an intense, in the moment, not premeditated action that changes sport at some times or whatever, you know, the application might be. But uh, yes, creativity does exist. I've had moments like that, um, but not as spontaneous, perhaps, at that level. Yeah, I, I love those moments. There are moments that I have in foiling where everything is going wrong. And, you know, we have the always eject, never correct, but every once in a while you go to correct. Um, and there are things every once in a while, I don't have any <clears throat> great examples, but there, there are moments when whatever I did was new to me and it just surprised me. You know, the, yep. the, the, the first person wasn't involved in any way, shape or form. And there's something that you figured out that has allowed you to make a micro adjustment in a moment where everything should go wrong. And I think those are some of the most fun moments because you're kind of just a passenger along for the ride. And <laughs> you, I end up just always laughing after them. I'm like, well, where the hell did that come from? That was awesome. Yep. Um, you know, and I seem to be having a lot more of those lately because of time on foil. And I've talked about this a little bit on the show. I think that winging and downwind and probably reverse order there um have made my foiling much better over the last year just because of the sheer amount of minutes flying the the amount of sensitivity that i have in my feet now the micro adjustments like you know a year ago i would move my back foot a little bit when i foiled like surf foiled and now I'm moving front and back foot pretty much in between every turn based on the speed to set up for the next turn. And 
it didn't come from prone foiling because I've done a lot of that. It had to have come from, you know, just all the micro adjustments you're doing, like on a downwind run for 30 minutes in a row. Yeah. Well, one example similar to yours from the downwinding is I've gotten to the point where I won't necessarily move my feet all the time, but I'll just pivot off my heel. So I'll change the angle of my front foot. Sometimes it's my back foot, but probably more my front foot where, you know, I might have it set at a 45 degree angle to the stringer of the board and I'll move it more to a 60 degree angle, let's say. So it's pointed more towards the nose mm-hmm. and that's all I needed. Yep. But it makes a difference, you know, and, uh, same with my back foot in wave riding. Sometimes it'll be perpendicular to the stringer, and that's sort of the the place that feels, you know, sweet. And sometimes if I turn my toe forward, I can drive my knee in more forward, which changes the angle of my hip. And while I didn't really drastically change the literal weight placement, just changing the angles of your body and allowing them to kind of contort in in different angles allows you to drive or have a more fore and aft sense sensitivity as opposed to just you know right and left sensitivity um is just as critical or or you know like that fine tuning you're talking about yeah so one of my good friends and you actually probably know him you know fisher grant I believe I do. Yeah. So Fisher is a, just a world-class surfer in pretty much every domain. He's a current uh, longboard pro, um, mm-hmm. top five in the world in the sub game when that was, you know, still a real competitive thing. And he he's dabbling in foiling. He is the world's greatest foiler for the amount of time he spent on foil. I would put him up. If you could look at hours on foil and where you're at right now, I'd put Fisher at the top of the list. And we got to tow a really good day um about three weeks ago now and it was one of the coolest and most frustrating humbling things i've ever seen (laughs) because over the course of two hours he got probably for anyone else six to eight months better and just watching his process and now the cool thing about fisher is that fisher it's all innate like he can't really articulate. He's gotten a lot better at it, but he, he's not good at articulating what he's doing. He doesn't doesn't really think it through. It just he spent so much time in board sports that he just understands, you know, weighting, balance, rails, you know, turn angles, everything to to a very innate level. But without having to have, you know, for me, I'm a very technical learner. I have to try to understand it first. Very very mm-hmm. few times do I have those kind of just innate breakthroughs. But over the course of about two hours you could watch him like doing micro adjustments with his feet on every wave, figuring out what was working. And by the end, if, and I have a couple clips, maybe I'll post one at some point. He doesn't do the, the Instagrams. Um, he was foiling at a level of like someone you think had all, all they'd done for the last three years is foil. Um, it was incredible. You know, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that a long border tapped into it faster than anybody else. Cause I've was just having this conversation with somebody the other day and, and another person I've been trying to get into foiling is, is an old longboard buddy of mine that's really good at longboarding and has a style that I think 
is so conducive to foiling and he doesn't even know it yet because he's just so smooth and nothing is out of place and there's no jerky movements. And I think that is, I mean, foiling to me is what you always wish longboarding would be. Mm -hmm. those, those more open, glidey turns that there was no friction associated with it. And to me, that's what foiling, um, at least in the version I'm chasing, is like. You know, the guy's doing airs and banging whitewaters and all that stuff. Now, that's not longboarding, or at least not the how I envision it um, in relation to foiling. But I think a lot of foil, or a lot of, excuse me, longboarders are a lot closer to being good foilers that haven't even done it yet, um, that should. And, and to hear your story uh, just reconfirms that belief. Because it is. It's, it's, it's what you wish longboarding would be, you know? It's, it's frictionless longboarding. <laughs> yeah. So let's take this back to the process of developing the Barracuda. I mean, the Barracuda has now absolutely changed the landscape of what downwinding is. I mean, if you look at any of the boards coming out now, I wish you were selling all of them, um, but everything has been modeled on the Barracuda with some slight variations. And, you know, it's very rare that a, a design will absolutely change kind of a whole industry over what a, a year span and and it did that mm -hmm. so so the advantages are are massive but can you talk us through you know the process of you know the idea to the iterations to knowing that you were onto something um and then and then where we are now well you know it goes back to the story i told earlier about having that vision of trying to make downwinding accessible to all the prone foilers um, and needing to up the efficiency of catching an open ocean swell. And so I wanna say the process of that initial vision, making the first prototype for it, to where we are today is probably about a, at least a four year process, might even be five year process. Um, you know, and keep in mind, I started foiling in the fall of 2016. And so uh, I've been at this for a while, but um, it was a slow, long process with a lot of misses. Um, but one of the, versions of, of a prototype I did, while it didn't allow me to catch open ocean swells, what I did do, and, and what I do with most of my prototypes, is first I go try them in the surf to figure out, you know, do I got the foil in the right place? What tuning do I need to do before I commit to a downwinder? Because once you're out doing a downwinder, there's, you can't do some adjust, adjusting, but it's it's much more difficult. So you want to have everything as close as you can. So if you go to the surf, you can come in and adjust and tune and kind of get it as close to what you think you might need when you get out on a downwinder. So I did that with one of these boards and I was like, wow, I can catch a wave way easier. And I think the board was a 6.0 and at that time a 6.0 was a long board <laughs> for proning anyway, because everybody was using 
anything from, you know, 310 to four and a half. And so it's like, hey, this is the longboard version of foiling. You know, it even looked like a little longboard. And so right away, to me, there was that application of just riding a wave with it. Um, it was kind of proof of concept that it was much easier catching a wave. So that kind of got me going down the path of, all right, well, I, I need more volume than this prototype I'm referring to offered and maybe a little more length, but a little more length at that time, everything moved in, in one or two inch increments. That seemed like a lot at the time. Um, so I creeped my way up to like a six, six, and that eventually became my, my, uh, normal length. And that was the 22 and a half wide I was talking about earlier where I thought it was way too narrow and it seemed like just this little skinny bullet. And I saw the board the other day and it looks like a fat little pig now. It's <laughs> hilarious. But at the time, you know, it, uh, it was the, one of the first boards I had, um, consistent prone downwind success on um it's funny looking back there was a few times i was so close like there was a time i made a seven six um prone i think it was 19 and a half 20 inches wide but it was only like three and a half inches thick because i used a blank where it was a surfboard blank essentially and that's all i could get out of it and that was the first board that I actually got up prone on in Hood River with the webbed gloves. And prior to that, all of my open ocean attempts essentially were failures. Austin was getting up, my son, but he's kind of a freak. So I didn't really look at that as proof of concept because I couldn't do it. And I probably represented the norm more than he does, that's for sure. And when I went to Hood River, I don't know, four years ago, maybe it was, and I had that 7.6, so it had the length, just didn't have the volume, but it, it worked. I had the web gloves, um, and bam, I got up consistently. I was like, okay, it is possible. And I came back to Maui thinking, all right, I'm, this is it. I'm in. Got out to Maliko and just got my ass handed to me. <laughs> Couldn't get up, paddled from, I think it was Maliko to, to Baldwin Park, which... If you don't know, it's a 10-mile run, and that's about half of it <laughs> that I paddled on my belly, trying as hard as I could with my web gloves and my 7.6, trying to get up, and I just couldn't. So, you know, it was kind of back to the drawing board a little bit, but what came from that episode was hand paddles, and I realized, well, if these little web gloves help, what would bigger web gloves do? And so I cut a couple blades off of my SUP paddles and I put straps on them. And I'm like, well, if a little paddle works better, a big paddle would work really good. So I strapped these things onto my hand, but what I did was I put them on the back of my hand, thinking that'll allow me to still use my hands to grab the rail to get up. And Never bothered to test them until I got out there. <laughs> and what I realized was because I had brought the paddle up past my wrist, while my wrist could bend away from the paddle fine, 
it couldn't bend into the paddle. And I quickly realized I can't use my arms to stand up because your wrist has to bend um, the opposite direction. <laughs> and so while I did discover, man, these make it easier to catch a bump, I couldn't stand up. And so, okay, maybe that's why the paddles need to be on the other side of the hand. And so I, I flipped them around, um, realized, okay, the paddles help you catch tremendously amount better. Now I can use my wrist again to stand up, but I thought putting the paddles on the board is gonna interrupt your ability to stand up. Well, I did it a couple times and I realized what I thought was an issue was not an issue at all. And so that's what got me to the hand paddles, which made a huge breakthrough back to the boards. And now it was much more possible I had success with prone downwinding. It was still extremely difficult and I was using foils much bigger than I'd actually want to ride, but I had broken through and gotten to the other side of, of that barrier that made it seem impossible. So now I know it's possible and now I can get back to work on the efficiency of the board. And one thing led to another. Um, and a lot of it was revisiting boards that I had done years prior um, without really the intention of efficiency being the primary goal, but just versions of, of stand-up boards mm -hmm. that were ultimately much more efficient um, than what we were riding at that time, which was low fives to mid fives um, for wave riding and stand-up. And my initial stuff was, you know, kind of between... 6.6 six and 7.6 six. and fortunately some of those boards were still being used in close proximity to me by some of my friends. I was like, hey, let me try that thing again. <clears throat> and I realized, whoa, these are way more efficient than what I'm doing right now. And that, that sort of broke open the conceptual uh, limits of what length could or should be. And so I took what I knew with all the mid sixes to sixes, and I made a, a eight foot version of the same thing. And it just completely changed everything. And that's sort of when I had that real aha moment, because I couldn't believe what I was feeling on the first wave and how easy it was. and. I remember coming in after like three waves and calling Austin and going, dude, where are you? You got to get down here. I can't, I think I'm just, I'm not sure. Get over here. I want you to test this board, right? So he was driving up the hill and he turned around and he came down and like, go, go get a wave and tell me what you think. And he came in and was, he just couldn't believe it. Now the board was too big for him and it wouldn't be what he'd ultimately want, but it was like, wow, that's a whole different deal. And so that's that was the first Barracuda. And that's what got me going in this direction. And that first one, I think, was 21 and a half. And at the time, it was a Frankenstein blank because I didn't want to waste any money <laughs> on such a kind of absurd concept board. 
So I had taken, you know, a couple blanks that weren't wide enough or scraps that weren't wide enough to make a board out of, glued them together, then had to glue another piece on the tail to get the length I wanted. And so I'm like, ah, okay, well, if it doesn't work, at least I didn't waste a bunch of money on foam. And uh, funny enough, it it changed everything. And uh, yeah, you know, 22, 21 and a half, I can't remember what it was. I thought, there's no way you'll ever be able to stand up on this. And of course, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty quickly, I think it was maybe Jeremy or Tomo um, were the first ones to kind of play around with standing up on what I thought was purely a prone board because I certainly didn't think I'd be able to. Um, but yeah, they, they stood on it and it was like, oh, wow, I guess you can stand up on that stuff. But uh, yeah, that, that was a major turning point in the evolution of the Barracuda. And then, then it was on to trying to figure out, okay, what, what is the most efficient nose? <clears throat> um, and things like that. And without getting into the real fine minutiae that kind of I consider as the secret sauce, um, I see a lot of the copies today and they're so literally copied, it, it kind of makes me realize it's guys, most guys, not all, there's, there's some designers out there that really are, are pretty Akamai or, or understand what is going on and why things are the way they are. Um, but there's a lot more going on there than meets the eye. And I've learned a lot about what's going on there. <laughs> I didn't even understand everything. Yeah. But in the process of trying to go beyond the original Barracuda, which seemed like massively forward, and how do you, how do you get past that, and how do you make something better? Um, I had to. It's, it's part of what I do, and it's part of what drives me. And so while I probably took a few months to kind of sit back and go, let's just enjoy this, this is awesome, it didn't take me long to realize when I started seeing some of the copies come out, all right, if these guys are going to copy, they're copying yesterday's art. I need to make new art, and let's start moving forward again. And so that's what I've really been focused on lately. And based upon the testing, uh, not just of me, but some of my team riders, we're making good strides again. And so I'm really stoked about that. That's amazing. I mean, you just touched on something there that I think is worth diving into a little bit deeper, and that is what's the way to articulate this there is a big difference between making something that works and understanding why something works and until you understand the why i don't think that you can iterate and move forward and that happened to me i spent about i don't know two years designing um a sup surfboard and well actually let me take take a step back here i started designing sup surfboards and in about six months i had an idea and it was using a, a step deck along with like a two-staged rocker um, that would allow for, you know, more shortboard-esque rails and uh, a big flat section across the bottom that you're hiding in um, a concave. So you still have rocker on the rails, but you can get glide from the middle. And then if you move back to the tail, there's a lot of tail rocker, so you can, you can turn pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. And in about, oh, I don't know, four to six months, I had a board that was, I thought, really good. Uh, I called it the Barra. And 
So loved it. And then I was like, all right, well, it's time for the next one. And, and, and I wanted to make it better. And I realized in trying to make it better, I couldn't for a long time. And I realized that I didn't really understand what made the borrow work. And it took me, golly, eight or 10 prototypes to really understand where the curves were that were allowing the feel on the borrow. And the borrow worked from like a 7.4 to like an 8.0. And if I got outside of that range, it wasn't nearly as good. And because mm -hmm. I didn't understand the relationship between where inflection points and the curves were and some things like that. And um, with the Phantom, it took me almost two years to get the Phantom, which was the first board that I did that was better than the Barra. Um, and it was because even though I had stumbled on something that was good, I didn't understand the, the, the reasons why it was good. And so I couldn't right. iterate and make it better. And that process then of learning to iterate and make better. So the people that I feel like right now are probably taking you know, what you've accomplished with the Barracuda are going to have a very hard time because they didn't put in the work to understand yep. what has made that board. So while it's easy to rip off the design, the next step, you know, is, is going to be much more difficult than if you've gone through the process. Is that that like sound resonate with you spot on yeah. spot on the the barracuda board has taught me so much um about kind of fluid dynamics or hydrodynamics in relation to a board moving through the water it's helped define my goals of what i thought I was trying to achieve versus what I'm actually achieving. Um, so with a much clearer vision of what I'm trying to achieve makes it easier to create something that helps you attain those goals. And that's all predicated on an understanding of what's actually happening. And, and there's things that can be happening in a design that you think come from one attribute, mm -hmm that actually don't, they come from something else. And so that's where some of the frustration can come um, in trying to improve upon something is because you've misinterpreted something, you're working on a, an attribute or a characteristic of design that has nothing to do with what you're trying to do because you don't totally understand what's even happening. And some of those things are extremely uh, minute and, and small, but some of them aren't. Some of them are much more significant. Um, but like with any, let's use a cake, takes lots of ingredients, right? But everyone's kind of using the same ingredients, flour, sugar, milk, egg, yada, yada, yada. But not everyone's using the same proportions of all those basic ingredients. Mm -hmm. And the combination of them is really the difference with maybe a couple secret ingredients is what makes a cake really good. Um, and I think it's kind of the same with a board. And it's, a, it's an accumulation of ingredients that um, add up to a level of performance or feel or efficiency or whatever your goal is it's it's to me it's never one thing 
Now, a lot of people can look at it and go, oh, the, the length and the width, that's the whole deal and the rest of it really doesn't matter that much. And the length and the width are going to have a substantial influence over the performance of the board. And now that's what a lot of people are chasing and they think it's just the length and the width and the rest of it's inconsequential. And yeah, you'll make a better board, but I promise you'll never make a board as good as mine if you don't know all the other little, how much salt, how much milk, how much whatever, almond extract, <laughs> that also goes into, which are, you know, half a teaspoon. <laughs> Just a little minute thing. Um, can have a, a significant influence over its total efficiency. Um, which then, if my understanding or what I think to be my understanding of what's going on, I can now start to make variations of all those design concepts that I've come across throughout my entire career. And I really believe all the experiences I've had. So I'll tell you one experience that had a huge influence and I reference all the time. So one day I get hell bent that I need to go canoe surf Jaws, right? <laughs> and so Laird, I enlist Laird to help give me you, out. And give so, me a minute to process that. <laughs> That's and <laughs> so I, I get Locke, rest in peace, Locke, good friend who just recently passed away. Uh, I ask him if he'll join me in the canoe, and he's just dumb enough to go, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he was one of my good partners in crime, and, and Laird said he'd, he'd tow us in. So anyway, on the, on the way up there, we're driving, and I'm, I'm towing the canoe up behind the jet ski. Nobody's in it. And there's way less drag on the ski than I thought there would be, to a point. Up to about 18 miles an hour, there was hardly any water coming off. It was sliding through the water as clean and as easy as could be. But when I got up above 18 miles an hour or into the 20s, all of a sudden it turned it into this giant fire hose of water getting sprayed everywhere um, off the canoe. And so, you know, I had some time to drive up there and start to try and figure out what the heck is going on where at a very specific point of velocity, something significant is happening. And so I realize, and I'm sure it's different velocities for different curves and craft, but a curve like a wing, as the velocity changes, the water attaches and it wants to follow that curve. And so, the breaking point for the canoe design and the curves associated with it was about 18 miles an hour. Below that, the water would slide over those curves smoothly and release. And above that um, 18 mile per hour point, the water would get sucked up the side of the canoe, so way above water level, hit the top of the gunnels where there's a little flare out and go shooting out and up and off to the side. And it, it took me a long time to really figure out what was going on, but it made me, it was one of my first um, kind of insights into 
how curves and speed and the influence it can have over, you know, a, a watercraft. And that was a huge insight for me. Um, now, I'm not designing things, obviously, for the foil board to work at 18 miles an hour. But once I realized uh, how influential speed, curves, and sliding through the water, um, how much the dynamics change at different speeds, it, it gave me a lot of insight to what's actually going on. And, and there's so much more going on than I thought. It wasn't like I had it all figured out at that point, but I learned something I didn't even know I didn't know that day. You know what I mean? I feel like that's one of those broad experience um, moments that then aid in future creativity. And without that moment experience, someone else won't won't connect that same dot. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I've had those in windsurfing, paddleboarding, stand-up paddling, just all these different variations and getting it wrong a lot. Let, let me tell you, I, while I've gotten a lot right, I seriously doubt anybody's gotten it wrong more than me. <laughs> but... But because I learned several years ago that that wrong is part of the essential process to getting it right, because wrong is only a label we put on it to inflect failure. It's not. It's information. Mm -hmm. Now, it might not be the information you wanted to achieve that specific short-term goal, but it's information that can be used at a later point. And a lot of times knowing what you don't want is just as valuable as knowing what you do want. And so that means I'm working with more information than a lot of the next guys. There's some old timers out there that I'm sure know more than me. There's no doubt in my mind because they've been through more experiences and have a broader access of information they've gathered over their lifetime. You know, one specific story I like to tell people is when we were doing downwind SUP stand-up, um, I had come up with this concept of putting a canoe nose on a stand-up board with a full planing tail. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be the shit. Wait till they get a load of me. They're not going to know what happened, right? I am going to kill guys. And so Mark Rathhorst helped me create it. And we went out and I tried it. And it did not work any better than anything I'd ever ridden. In fact, it might have worked a little bit worse. So I thought, oh, I must have screwed up the rocker. Some, we did something wrong. Maybe Mark, I don't know, whatever it was, the way he sanded. Because there's no way this concept's going to fail. So I had to make another one. And it wasn't that different than the first one. And it was just as bad as the first one. So now I'm horribly demoralized. What I thought for sure was money in the bank wasn't. And about a week or two after the second failure, I was looking through, I want to say it was like a 1970s old surfer mag. And there was this picture of a board that looked exactly like what I had just created. 
and the logo on it was Mickey Munoz. And I know Mickey, and he's a friend of mine. And I thought, oh my God, I've got to call him and find out what was up with that design. Because it was literally an exact copy. And at that point, it would have been 30 years prior. So I call him on the phone instantly. I'm like, Mickey, Mickey, I'm just, I'm da, da, da. you know, I go through the story real quick and tell him I saw it in a magazine. And I ask him, how did yours work? What, what was the deal? And he goes, that old piece of shit? <laughs> that, that thing never worked. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> and, uh, because I just did exactly the same thing and, and mine didn't work either. And he goes, yeah. He goes, that board did teach me a valuable lesson though. And I well, like, what is it? What, what? G give it to me. And he goes, however you enter the water is how you have to exit the water. So if you're going to enter planing, then you need a planing tail. If you're going to enter displacement, then you should have a displacement tail. You can't put a dis you can't put a displacement nose on a planing tail. And all of a sudden, my canoe experience that I had, you know, prior to, made sense. I was actually sucking the board down into the water when I got going fast, and it was like, oh. So that's why I say there's some old timers like Mickey that have a wealth of knowledge, not because they're necessarily smarter, but they've been in experiences like that and they've tried it before. And, you know, I honestly believe I'm not doing anything new. Now, the application might be different because foiling didn't exist back when they were designing things, but holes going through water are as old as time. And people have been working on it for a long freaking time. And, and that story just illustrates to me that, uh, you know, these old timers, not, nothing's new. You just have to experiment, fail, learn. Because a lot of times, like, like we were saying earlier, you get something right and it works great. But you changed four or five things at the same time you might be attributing that progress to something that had nothing to do with it. So, yeah, it was a, a really good learning moment for me, how, how much is going on and how much there is to learn. And something that works great in one application, you change the intention, and all of a sudden it's working against you rather than for you. Yeah, I am... Um... I just had one of those moments that I can't really share all of the details with yet, but I just realized something about masts that I had a correlation causation. Um, my, uh, I was wrong in correlation causation, and I think I just figured it out, and we're about to test some stuff, and I think it's going to be really cool. But it, it was one of those moments where... I was assured a few months ago that there was a correlation somewhere and now I think that there's a, a different relationship and it's it's one of those moments it's like, wow, that seems so simple now, but I don't think it is. Um, it's really cool. That That's a good segue, Dave, what you were just talking there about experimentation, something else we've touched on. And, you know, I love that you and I get to chat, I don't know, once a month or whatever it is. and. Our conversations are actually pretty similar. I think we can record them all. are pretty similar to podcasts because it's usually about an hour and we're talking about all of this stuff. But we got into 
talking about the difference in in testing and surfing um so like sessions where you're going out there and you're trying to accomplish something you're testing it's something i've done a lot of over the last eight nine months on this project with unifoil and how it's a different mindset and a different approach and i thought maybe you could touch on that a little bit you know like the purpose going out uh in a session where where it's about trying to figure out something versus you know just going surfing and the beauty in that and then the frustration in that as well yeah you you got that right <laughs> yeah, there's more it, frustration <laughs> there's more frustration with testing than there is joy well, well, but one thing i should say real quick is that when we we talked about this i was like that would make a great podcast conversation david and but it's hard to say to have this conversation and not come off like um I don't know, have it come off bad because I mean, you're still surfing. It's still the most fun thing ever, but it can be really frustrating. And we're really lucky in that we get to do that. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it's worth saying that it, we're not complaining about the process here. Um, but it is, it is a different mindset and it can be hard and challenging. Oh, absolutely. And you know, the, the difference is when you go out surfing, you're going out with a free mind with no particular goal or set of uh, agenda to try and achieve. And, and you can relax and, and just be in the moment and not be critical. But when you're testing stuff, you have to be hypercritical <coughs> of what's going on. And you're doing all this calculus in your mind in real time, feeling things. And it's not relaxing. You're not enjoying the moment like you would where you don't care what's going on. You're just feeling these sensations that feel good and enjoying them purely for their enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And when you're testing things, um, you've got to go out there with a really different intention. And you know, I'm not going out to get as many waves as I want. I'm gonna try and keep this to three waves, see if I can keep it to three waves. Sometimes it can be two, but if you're catching five waves and going changing something, and you can anticipate changing at least four things, maybe you got eight things you wanna try, or you're gonna, you know, you catch more than five waves, it's gonna take a really long time. And so you've already putting all these guardrails on your session of like, okay, three waves, move on to the next thing. Three waves, move on to the next thing. And so that interrupts any flow you might create on a normal session. Yep. Um, you're not going out to get the best waves. You're just trying to catch something quick and easy on the inside. So that's going to compromise the quality of your ride. Um, you're not trying to perform, you're just trying to feel. So that's going to compromise the performance of your ride. But it's, it's vital information and it's critical to the kind of progressive cycle um, of how you get somewhere. And, you know, I was very fortunate to have a, a gentleman named Dave Ezzy, who was a windsurf sail designer back in the 80s, teach me this process. We'd spend all day testing maybe two or three wave sails down at Hukipa. And we'd come in and change the downhaul and then change the outhaul. And 
let's say there's A, B, and C, and you're testing A and B, trying to figure out what's better between those two. All right, B's better. Now B goes against C. Now you got to go start the process over, and it might have taken you half an hour and an hour to get figure out which was better between A and B. Now you got to figure out what's better between B and C. Now you're two hours in, and, and let's say now B's still better than C. Now you got to change all the rigging again and see if your rigging was what made it better or if it's the sail that made it better. And you, you start the process over again, and now you're three hours in. And while you're right, it might sound like complaining, it becomes work because you're so critically analyzing everything that the quality of your off the lips, everything that you deem enjoyable about a session is out the window and means nothing at the moment. It's all about analyzing the feel of the equipment. And what he taught me was that, okay, let's say we get to the end of the day, we've figured out sale B is, is the ultimate winner. Yep, be here same time tomorrow because we're going through it all, all through it again because just because you got to a result doesn't mean that result is accurate. Now you've got to verify it. And things like emotion, your, your, the conditions could have had a major influence over the feel that made that one win on that particular day. And so you got to replicate everything you just went through to verify your result. And I found out that a lot of times emotions, conditions, whatever it might be, changes the result. So you can't trust yourself with one conclusion. You have to go through it again. And sometimes, you know, that's just A and B. Now you've developed D, E, and F sales to come along into the equation and start on over again. And so that whole process is never ending, but it gives you access to so much information. And while you might've made six sales, five of them ultimately aren't it. Boy, did you learn a lot from those five that you could deem as failures that trying to get past, you know, to the seventh one is now gonna become even better. So I don't know if that's, was the gist of our conversation. Yeah. But uh, if I remember right, or if that answers the question. <laughs> no, 100%. I mean, so the process of testing foils, I have loved immensely. The process of testing tails, I have found very tedious. And I think it's because with the tails, it's not just, is the tail good? You can't tell right away because you can shim 0 0.25, 0 0.5, 0 0.751. And the amount of trips to the beach, I'm getting, my buddies here have been making a lot of fun of me lately because it's like two waves to the beach, two waves to the beach. The uh, Our audio got cut off there. My computer decided to turn off. It's time for a new MacBook. Um, but I was talking about the, in testing tales, how tedious that can be because there are so many different variations to get the right feel and to, to accurately test a tail you have to make sure that you're getting the best out of the tail you're testing which can require you know two or three different shimmings and possibly moving of of the mass to get the right feel and that's a process that it's taught me 
an insane amount about feels on foil, but I can't wait for, for that to be over. Really. I agree. Testing is fun in its entirety because you learn something new, you're progressing your equipment, and ultimately you're getting to uh, create something that will help you ride better. Yep. But even having said that, there's times where you can object objectively create something that is more efficient, but because of the ride characteristics, it's ultimately a net negative. And what I mean by that is I, rem I remember testing some um, real high aspect, thin um, foils a while back, and there was no doubt they absolutely were faster, easier to get up, but they turned like poop. <laughs> and maybe my style of riding riding hadn't progressed enough or wasn't at a place where I could overcome that barrier of of maneuverability and I hated them and what I discovered in the process of testing is while objectively they were more efficient they compromised my riding to the level that I ha I was taking lines that weren't as aggressive so ultimately I was slower. If if you were timing point A to, to point B, because on the foils that I was riding at the time, I could be much more aggressive, much more maneuverable, and set myself up into situations that were difficult to ride through. But because of my maneuverability, I could put myself in those situations and know I could ride out of them, which ultimately meant I was in a steeper place, generating more speed and ultimately going faster, my average would be faster because I could hold those higher speeds for longer times and replicate them more with aggressive positioning. Whereas with a foil that, yeah, by the numbers it was faster, I would go slower ultimately because I'd have to compromise the way I ride. So just because something is ultimately more efficient, it doesn't always equate to it being better. And I'm sure you found that with your foils or your tails and the angles and the mass position and all that. Um, you have to bring that kind of human element or overall bigger picture objective. Is this going to be easier for everybody or is this so specific and, and targeted that, yeah, this one instance there's no doubt this is better but nobody else will be able to ride it and ultimately it's not going to help anybody it's interesting you said that i mean that has been my journey over the last month i would say and that is so i try as hard as i can to get video when i am testing and some of the most frustrating moments are when you come in and you've, you've got an idea of what felt a certain way <clears throat> but it's not really until you see it that you get a complete picture. Um, yep. And I hate when those two things are opposed. When the feel and and the look are different, it makes you do a lot of soul searching. And what I realized <laughs> is that the, the, the feels that I liked the most did not equate to the smoothest, 
best runs that I was having. And what was going on was that I really loved the feel of really tiny, incredibly fast tails. But they introduce a lot more nuance and necessary like micro adjustment to ride them. And that exposes itself in, you know, just a more busy body in the riding. And once I started putting that together, um, because I hadn't really been testing some tails that were a little bit more deliberate, a little bit more stable, and it changed the direction of what we're working on a little bit right now in going for something that is, it's going to be more user friendly, but it's also allowing me to have what I feel like are my best lines. And if you look at kind of like a lot, some of the clips that I dropped when I, we actually had some really good surf there for a little while. And all those were on a little bit bigger of a tail than I've been riding. And I, I feel like it's allowed, allowed me to settle in more. I mean, I guess there's the, there's the setup that allows you to do a hundred percent of your surfing, but if you can only do it 30% of the time, because there's instability, the setup that gives you 90%, but you can do it, you know, 95% of the time is a better setup. And that was a kind of a big aha moment for me in, in dialing it back a little bit. And now I'm really excited in the direction that it's taken us forever to get these tails done. I mean, we finished three foils now and we're still not done with the tail. (laughs) Yeah. And, and to, to your point, um, while we're always working on as designers, the optimum piece of equipment, um, the inherent understanding that 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 brings is you you are thinking in things of right and wrong, better and worse. And I had a philosophical change not too long ago that I first I identified that and realized that that. I perceive things as better or worse, right or wrong. And it finally dawned on me that that might not be accurate. There's just different. And so there's days I will make myself ride stuff that I wouldn't normally want to take because I think, oh, normally this, this is the fastest one or this is the one I do the, the best turns on. But when I force myself to take a lot of times the situation is take a foil bigger than I would ideally want to ride, I have to change a couple of things. The vision of what my riding is going to look like or what my, my objectives are and um, open my mind to creating a style of riding that's more conducive to that foil. So rather than like speed climb over things in a downwind situation and and optimize my riding from speed being my baseline to now focusing way more on line, speed is not the priority. It's placement. Maybe I'm trying to pump less. So again, it's it's the lines I'm taking. And so by forcing myself to ride stuff that I wouldn't, normally choose naturally it forces you to have an adaptive style which sometimes means developing your skills so you're a more versatile rider in more situations with more um variation of equipment 
you know? Sometimes we get so locked into, no, it's got to be this board, it's got to be this mast with this foil, and if it's not, I don't want to ride it. I look at that as limiting yourself. And so that's why I say every now and then I'll, I'll yank. I'm really used to a front foot strap. And every now and then I'll yank it off and go, all right, no foot strap today for a couple reasons. It's going to change the lines I take. It's going to change the level of aggression I uh, approach things with. And it's going to develop a skill where I'm not reliant on that piece of equipment for my riding. And so just by doing that as an example, it, it forces you to develop skills, maintain versatility in those skills, and not think of it as right and wrong, just different. And I've tried to adopt that in, in a lot of the different aspects of board writing, board design, foils, da-da-da, I'm down the line. Does that uh, make any sense to you? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think that, I mean, something I've said for a long time is, is I think gear teaches us. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm such a prolific, like, tester of things is because, um, and, and it's interesting, we talked about Fisher earlier, but, but Fisher actually is the guy that I credit this with, where um, he had been coming down to surf with me in Costa Rica, and this is kind of in the heyday of, of SUP. And I was asking him like what I could do. I mean, the way he draws lines is is so incredible. And there's just certain things that I wasn't seeing that he was seeing. I was like, what do I need to do to be able to uh, to do what you're doing? And he's like, you're not gonna like this, but I think you should ride a single fin mid length for like six months. I was like, that's okay. And so I went out and I bought a Howard Special, a six six Howard Special, still one of my favorite boards today. And I rode it for six months. The funny thing was, is I couldn't surf it at all. I mean, I'd been shortboarding my whole life and then got into SUP and I couldn't draw a line on, on this board. I didn't understand the difference between rail and tail and all these things. And um, through learning to surf that board, it completely changed the way that I look at drawing lines and where you get speed from and where speed is on a wave and all of this. And so ever since then, it anchored in me that, you know, when I get into a plateau, one of the best ways to get out of it is to figure out a stretch point in like setup gear and then like you know going from a surf wing to a high aspect wing i mean those are very different modalities in in foiling and you know if you can go back and forth between the two of those you're learning each time you do it and you're bringing something back um so that completely i completely um agree with with what you said there yeah i i and look, I'm, a, I'm one of the biggest culprits and a victim of it myself. I get so f focused on, oh man, I want to see how small of a foil I can ride and still go prone, you know? And, and, and not too long ago, the RS1150, I thought was the pinnacle of where I'd be able to get to in terms of smallness of foil and still prone. Now that's just my daily bread and butter and it's starting to feel big to me. And I took my what was it, RS 1075, which has a lot less low end and a, a bit better high end and surfs and turns better, I think. But it feels much riskier to prone it. And so that only works when you think 
that smaller is better. And when I had this realization, smaller is not better, it's just different. And that kind of plays back into the Barracuda concept. Everybody's been chasing short for so long, it's just a given and massly accepted, shorter is better. No, I don't buy that anymore. Shorter is not better. It's just different. But until you fully accept that concept, the Barracuda is going to be hard for you to totally buy into because it's so much longer. But once you do, then all the positive attributes that come along with the Barracuda, smoothness of the turn, more projection in your pumping, ease of catching a wave, which is the obvious one, but there's all these little subtleties that you wouldn't think of or don't notice on the first couple times you're riding it because you're so overwhelmed with just the length and and uh, the modifications to your technique that you've got to make because of the length. But once you get past your first two or three, four rides and you start to focus on the subtleties of what that board does, all of a sudden these kind of continual flow of aha moments starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, I've never thought or have done that. And now I can. And that's all about first opening your mind to get getting rid of better and worse and accepting just different. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that can lead to getting over to the plateaus that you just spoke of and getting stuck in an area that doesn't feel like you're progressing enough um, and just opening your mind and changing your equipment to develop your skills, like you said, with, with the single fin, is so critical. But it all starts with setting down the belief, and that's all it is. It's not a fact. <laughs> it's a belief that shorter is better. You know what I mean? And so that that probably just like what did he just say is he trying to insinuate shorter isn't better yeah that's exactly what i'm saying and so while you're wrestling with that for a little bit um maybe because you ride a four six or whatever it is Mm -hmm. it might be better for what you're trying to do which is pump around for an hour um like some of these guys are doing an hour and a half i can't remember what the record is now it's insane it's amazing it's an incredible accomplishment but we're not all trying to pump around for a couple hours a lot of us just want to make smooth turns and have an easy ride and so a four six isn't going to help us achieve that it will banging white water it will making snap turns in the hook there's no doubt about it i'm not saying shorter doesn't have a place or a function it absolutely does. And I'm not saying the Barracuda is for everybody, but it certainly has a place and a function for everybody if your mind's open. You know what I mean? And so uh, changing your mindset or your perception about what is best uh, or worse is a good place to start. And there's only different. And, and, Everything has its place in time. 
but one size does not fit all. And thinking shorter is better is trying to make that one size fit all. I think that's a, a beautiful point. And it's so apropos right now where we are in the world. You know, if you look at that on a larger scale um, and you kind of like think about that as far as, you know, no matter where you sit politically or whatever, but just so many people are locked into different beliefs right now. And it's, it's hard to, to get out of those. Um, and, and it is a belief, you yeah. know, just purely a belief and beliefs change throughout our lives and throughout our writing experience, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, obviously if you followed my career at all, I've windsurfing into towing into <laughs> stand up well longboarding was really a big part of my whole act kind of between windsurfing and and the big wave towing and uh you know as i sent you the picture i'm kind of back into longboarding again i'm bringing that back into the mix and having a ton of fun with that <clears throat> but our beliefs change and our objectives change and so what you believe to be one thing at any given time, very likely will change. And all of a sudden it's like, well, was I wrong before? And I had that particular belief? No, it was just different. And your beliefs change, um, and that's fine. It, it, I'm not saying that's right or wrong either, but understand it's a belief, it's not an absolute. So what is it? And, and I find myself in the same category to where you have the flexibility to be able to change, you know, passions pretty quickly. But while you are involved in one, it is such a massive component, the very best thing. And we touched on this the other day when we were talking, but it's it's like it seems like there's a flexibility in being able to change, but when you are, and I might be wrong here, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when you are in the midst of the sport, it, you know, it's, it's gravitational. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of draw to it and, you know, it's, it's the best thing going in the moment. Yeah, I agree. Um, that comes from passion and, when you have it, it, it's, it feeds itself. And the more joy you get from that passion, the more you want to pursue it because it makes you feel good and great. And that just gets you diving down deeper into it. <clears throat> and while, to use your word, the modality of my writing has changed throughout my water career one thing hasn't the level of fun and the passion by which i pursue those fun things um so that that's really the common thread and learning and going through the learning process is a lot of what drives that enjoyment and so moving on to a new variation of foiling or of surfing, you know, be it from longboarding to towing, towing to sup, whatever it is, there's the learning that's associated with it to try and master that given genre of the sport. 
and so much enjoyment can be uh, gotten from progressing, you know, you know, <laughs> nice little plug for progression project, but it's so true. <laughs> That's where it came from. It is, it's so true that that is um, where a lot of the enjoyment comes from. And the literal sport itself or the variation we're passionate about at the time being isn't uh, within itself what is great. It's what it allows us to experience. And, and for me, most of that is that learning process because I tend, when I tend to feel I can't progress at something anymore, I tend to lose interest and move on to what's next, right? And I'm sure that's common for most people, but now with foiling, there's so many aspects to it um, that rather than changing the sport, I can just kind of change what my objectives and my intentions are with it, you know, which kind of reminds us, reminds me of the conversation we touched on the other day, um, how our personal writing is evolving. Mm -hmm. And going in, you know, my age plays a huge part of, of why my style of writing is evolving. Um, I don't want to be injured. My physical capabilities might be deteriorating a little bit. And so my objectives change. So I still have something to chase and I still feel like I'm evolving. And, you know, I think I use something to the effect of I'm not trying to create punk music anymore with my writing. I'm trying to create a symphony. So what that means to me is smoother, um, more control, more connectivity between everything, more flow. Um, which equates to more speed, maybe harder turns, um, decisions that come more natural, not doubting yourself, let's say in a downwind situation, where when you make a decision, you commit to it with, with zero hesitation. And, you know, 99% of the time, that decision will pay dividends with another glide uh, or another bump. But when you make a decision, be it right or wrong, doesn't matter, and you doubt it, that's a lot of why downwinding is difficult because you have to learn to commit to your plan mm -hmm. and execute it to its completeness. And most of the time it works out. Now, it's a very fluid situation, kind of transitioning more to downwind talk here, but it's a very flu fluid situation where you're constantly making decisions so there's lots of opportunity to practice the commitment to those decisions that usually results in success. Now, when you start doubting those decisions and you hesitate even for a split second, and I, I mean literally, you hesitate for 0 0.1, 0 0.2 of a second, sometimes that's enough hesitation to break the flow of your plan or your approach and now all of a sudden, you're a little bit behind where you should be in executing your plan, which means you run into the back of a bump, you lose speed, now you come down off foil, and you got to start again. Yep. So um, that was a quick walk around the park from the intention of how I'm trying to ride <laughs> to a specific technique in downwinding. But 
you know, I think you get the point of what I'm trying to make. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I feel all of that. I love the symphony analogy as well, because I kind of think of it like rhythm and, you know, in, in the surf or in downwind, I guess as well. I just like to be in time. And I feel like yep. my objective for the last year, um, I'm actually starting to like weave in a little bit more critical foiling again, but for the last year, my objective... <laughs> well, well, pop the brakes. I'm not going to let that go by. What's that? A little bit of critical foiling. Some of the stuff I've seen on your Instagram pages, but you've got to screw loose <laughs> with how aggressive some of your progressive writing is. It's, I mean, it's fun to see. You're not the only one doing it, but <laughs> I'm not going to let you go over casually and insignificantly how progressive your writing is. Oh. Um, I would imagine there's some influences out there that you're looking at, but oh, yeah. you're right on par with them, dude. You're Thanks. ripping. Thanks. Well, but I took a step back. Um, you know, last year, about a year ago, my objective was kind of seeing how radical I could get above the lip. And then I had a couple really close calls. And it was right when I was starting to ride kind of like the 1095 and, you know, sharp, high aspect foils. And I had one go right by my face. And I was like, oh, this is kind of kind of sketch. Um, and at the same time, I was being drawn more towards seeing like how tight I, I watch a lot of hard boot snowboarding. Like I absolutely love laid over hard carving turns and not losing any speed and so that's been yeah. my objective for the last year and when i think about your symphony analogy i think about a kind of like rhythm where i want everything on time and and on in place and so you know it's not just can you do a hard banked over you know carve it's can you finish that in the right spot to where you're getting the most speed and power from the next bump or you know section or whatever it is and then weaving those through and my objective is always can i do like a run where i feel like everything is as optimized as it could be and it doesn't really look any different when i feel like i get them right or <laughs> when i don't i don't think anybody would ever notice but uh, no I, I know exactly what you mean it, i i do that a lot i mean i'm sure we all do you you create yeah. these little games you play with yourself on a downwind run and one of them is, can you make your turns um, critical and progressive, but completely functional? So that that turn ultimately is what launches you into the next connection point, as opposed to some of the turns I see of the younger guys doing downwinders where they're ripping. I'm not taking anything away. They are ripping turns in downwinding, but they're not functional turns. They're, they're progressive fun turns, no doubt about it. Back to my earlier point, no right or wrong, no better or worse, just different. But using the symphony analogy, can you make those same kind of turns that have a level of functionality that create the connectivity and the fluidness and the timing like you're talking about? without the bobbles and with minimal pumping. Mm -hmm. Boy, if you can do that, now you're conducting, you know, the symphony analogy. And to your point, you might not notice much different from uh, an observer point, but the feeling 
is amazing. Yep. And that's one of the big things in foiling already is I feel like you have to give up to be an all-in foiler. You're giving up some of the um the visual of surfing, right? Surfing is explosive and you know big sprays and 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 looks much more critical. Like you're already giving up a lot of that when you get into foiling. It just doesn't look as impressive until you know what's going on. Um, yeah. But I think that's I think that's freedom in a way as well because it allows you to play less with what something looks like and more with what it feels like, which is more of an internal journey, which I think is better. Well, it's it's less butcher knife and more scalpel. You know, it's really <laughs> precise. You're not just out there chopping wood and hacking away at it, um, which there's a time and a place for, but to master that nuance or attempt to master that nuance um, takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, which feels the same at times as trying to figure out how to do an alley-oop on a wave with a foil. That takes a lot of time and effort and commitment. Um, it comes with a much higher risk, which I'm not willing to pay anymore because I like being able to ride day after day, week after week. And if I go out and try and do something stupid that I see my son do, I might be out of the water for a month or two, you know? And I can't, I'm not willing to pay that price. And so to still have um, something to work on and progress and try and master um, that's much more subtle and comes with much less risk, I think I'm having just as much fun as anybody. I don't doubt that. I watched um, the documentary that you did with Brent Deal, and mm -hmm. I loved, one of my favorite parts was when you were talking about currency, and you were talking about experience is the ultimate currency, and that you're a billionaire, if that's the way that you, you look at it. I thought that was such a, a beautiful way to sum up, you know, what we chase. Yeah, very true. Now, if we could just get that currency to pay for electricity and food. <laughs> <laughs> but it does pay for happiness, and that accounts for a lot. So, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about anything. I've had more than my fair share. Um, I think that's a beautiful way to, uh, to wrap this. I mean, what do you want to leave folks with, Dave? And I, as always, I, I truly appreciate your time and, and really value um, what I learned from you, and I hope everyone else does too. No, well, it's to that point, it's a pleasure for me to have these conversations. Obviously, um, this isn't our first one, and, and we do it pretty commonly. But uh, it's fun to share it with your listeners, and hopefully they get some enjoyment and, and something valuable out of it. But uh, I'm like every other foiler out there. I love talking about it. I love thinking about it. I love doing it. Um, so it's it's really fun to have these conversations because a lot of times during my little diatribe about something, I'm analyzing, do I really mean that? Did, did, did I miss a lesson somewhere that I should have been paying more attention to? So it, it's good to have these conversations because it, it creates a lot of self-analysis and, and that's a good thing too. So... You know, almost everybody that comes on your podcast says it, and we all mean it. Thank you so much for creating this platform to, to share our stories and our 
experiences and I think you're doing a great job with it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Dave, it's now what, seven o'clock your time? <laughs> start, time to start the day? Yep. Score time to go check the surf. Yeah. Awesome, Dave. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Eric. And aloha, everybody. This is the Progression Project Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonson.